This is Living Faith, the podcast ministry of First Baptist Church of Avon Park, Florida. We are located at 100 North Lake Avenue. Our Sunday morning services start at 1045 a.m. Sunday school is at 930 a.m. You can find out more information about First Baptist Church at fbcap.net. This is part of our current Sunday evening series called 18 Words You Really Need to Know. Well, tonight, if you're visiting with us, we have a little bit different uh, format than what we usually do on Sunday night. One of the the great privileges that we uh, have as a local church is we have the opportunity to preach and teach in different settings, in the small classrooms and in the the pulpit area, but you'll notice sometimes in Sunday school, it depends on if the, the teacher will take a breath and give you a moment. Uh, sometimes in small groups, we are able to uh, ask questions, but uh, very rarely do we have a, an opportunity that we feel like we really get to ask questions and to hear those questions articulated. So uh, last year, toward the end of last year, we had our first edition, I guess you could say a pastor talk. Uh, and so we felt like that uh, several questions had been asked of us as a staff and as a church, and so we're going to answer those tonight. Something we did a little different this uh, morning is we provided the four main questions uh, that were asked, uh, and uh, we, we're trying to uh, allot ourselves the time necessary. See the big clock up there? We have a clock. Uh, so uh, we, can, we can get home uh, at, a, at a decent time, so we're not going to be over, so don't, don't worry about that. Thing I want us to, to think about as we enter into uh, this type of of um, platform is that it, it doesn't really matter what opinions are. It doesn't really matter what uh, the world says. It doesn't matter what people say. It matters what God says. And and sometimes even in church life, as we go into the first question, sometimes in church life, church life has has changed. And so even, even as time has progressed for whatever reason, church life changes and we, get, we begin to buy into, well, that's kind of where we've moved as a church. Something we need to understand is truth never moves. Uh, years ago, they used to think the world was flat and, and they proved that it wasn't. So everybody that thought the world was flat was proven wrong. It's not flat. Uh, well, God's word is not up for discussion of whether or not it is true. God's word is true, and it will not change. And so questions and things that we discuss, uh, we may be basing it on feeling, which is wrong, opinion, which is wrong. We may even uh, base it on something that we've heard somebody say. But unless that person is saying it based on Scripture, then we cannot hold it as the truth. Uh, now, that's difficult because we all have our things that we want to be true and that we believe in. And even as a pastor, so many times we need to look at the Word of God and ask ourselves, are we doing this just because we've always done it, or is that what God's Word said? And so as we answer these, we are answering these biblical, and uh, we want to know what God has said. And then I think it's up to us to, to ask ourselves if, if we are going to obey that and practice that. Uh, and to live that out. So I, uh, Matt and I will be uh, rotating uh, back and forth. We have looked at these uh, in advance. They were great questions. The first question is, uh, and they were, these were all submitted uh, from different aspects of our church. Um, I don't know if there was an average age. I don't, I'm thinking that most of, all of them were from adults. 
that was submitted uh, for different reasons and different uh, aspects of life. First question, what is church discipline? What does it look like? And can a church be healthy uh, without it? Well, I think in order, to an- in order to answer that question, we have to ask ourselves, when we think about church discipline, because when we think about church discipline, we probably all have the same first thing that pops in our mind. You know, you're a church that's throwing people out because they don't live right. You know, that's, that's the first thing that pops in our mind, church discipline. Well, I think before we can answer that question, we have to ask ourselves, what is a church? Uh, if, if, a, if, a, if a church is a civic organization or something that you join uh, that is just based on, you know, just a thing, uh, that, then you answer church discipline completely different. If you look at the, the church and you ask yourself, well, what does the Bible say the church is? The Bible says the church is a called out, it's a set apart, it's an assembly of people. Uh, we've gathered uh, as the body of Christ. We are uh, the temple of God, the household of God. As we've looked at Titus, we are a family. And so we understand that this is a, a unique setting. It's a special setting. It's, it's different than any other setting in group uh, this side of heaven. And then this week, as I thought about that, I had to define another aspect. What, what do I believe the church is? Then I had to ask myself, what is the role of a pastor shepherd? When we begin to look at church discipline in the way that we define that word, we have to ask ourselves, what is my responsibility as a pastor? What is God asking me to do to, to lead, to feed, to care, to protect uh, the church body as, as we follow the great shepherd and know that God has put shepherds amongst us to lead his people? And so when we think of church discipline, basically what we're looking at is what happens when the body of Christ, within the body of Christ, there is something that is going on that is contrary to God's word. Uh, it is open. It is, you know, in the sense of ongoing and repetitive. And it's something that's not right. Well, think about it this way. What do we do in a family when we have a child that is misbehaving? How many of us have said, well, if y'all don't do something soon, that is going to, that is, you know, how many of us said that? I say it in Walmart all the time. You know, I look around at Walmart, and a little child is just pitching a fit, and we always say, if we don't get a handle on that, we have a lot of teachers here, don't we? How many times as teachers have we seen in the classroom children that are just so misbehaved? And so that, that word discipline is dealing with the idea that there is something that is not right, we know that it is not right, and so it is something that needs to be dealt with. I began to look at it from a, from a biblical standpoint. And so the idea historically, the word church discipline means that there's someone within the church body that is living a, a, an ongoing sinful life and uh, there's no repentance there. It's just ongoing in a blatant sense. And it is the idea that the church uh, lovingly and gently approaches that situation and calls it what it is in order to help that person. Now, here's the thing about biblical church discipline. The idea is not just getting rid of that person. The idea is helping that person understand that their life is going to not only affect them but affect others, just like you would in a church family, a, a, a real family. You're, you're doing that for the betterment of the family and then that child. So I looked at it three different ways. Uh, I'm going to read Galatians chapter 6, 1. When we think about church discipline, we think about it from the standpoint of what is it. The purpose of dealing with sin within the church body 
is to help that person realize this is not good, this is not right. And I say this often as a pastor, this is not going to end well. God never blesses disobedience. Uh, He will always discipline and judge. And part of what we have as a church is we're trying to help people understand what it means to live for Christ uh, because we know that it will not end well if they are living a life uh, that is not right. Galatians 6, 1, we've been going through this on Wednesday nights. One of the main things historically that's been in place for church discipline was in place to help restore and to reconcile. You're helping someone overcome something. Galatians 6, 1, brothers, if anyone is caught as a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, a spirit of love, a spirit that your motives are right. We know that when it start, we start looking at other people's sin, we better be sure that we're looking in the mirror, uh, but we're helping them in a spirit of gentleness because we are concerned about them. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And so if we think about it scripturally, uh, the means of church discipline has been in place for reconciliation and restoration, to help someone overcome. Uh, How many have ever heard the stories or read any old church minutes years ago? Anybody ever done that? Uh, Wendell Smith is the resident historian, doesn't he? Have anybody ever heard all the history of this area in Hardy County from Wendell Smith? So he and I were talking about this uncle of his great uncle some uncle in the past and he read in the church minutes at some creek that was over on a um uh what's the name of the church out there creek out there charlie creek it was not charlie creek baptist but it was a church on charlie creek and he said that the 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 great uncle had had been out and about and he was drinking and carousing frolicking and so the the church minutes read that so and so so and so was out frolicking and it was it needed to be dealt with it was an embarrassment to the lord it was hurting the witness of the church and they called brother so-and-so up before the church and they dealt with it now could you imagine us doing that today so we have to ask ourselves why was it so prevalent back then and we are so afraid to say anything now another great example I remember sitting in a church service and two of our our wonderful saints years ago, there was a a sheriff election. They weren't judging. They were just two ladies. Older ladies think everybody can't hear them, but I think they talk so loud and realize everybody else can hear them. It was one of those conversations. And uh, they said, where has our world gotten to? Back when we were younger, if if somebody running for sheriff was shacking up, we wouldn't vote for him. You know, he's been shacking up and he's going to be our next sheriff. Now, I thought about that. That's a lot of truth in that. Years ago in a small town, if you were shacking up, you couldn't run for sheriff, could you? Now, don't leave here saying the pastor said that you can't run for office if you're shacking up. But the idea is, who moved? Did God's move? Did did holiness move? Did purity move? No, I think the church has moved. I think it was Scott's parents, and they were in a small, I hate to say country church, that country church would do this and city church wouldn't. I think it was Scott King's parents when they got married in Alabama, and uh, they honeymooned a little bit too long for the preacher's liking. And so Sunday morning at the invitation time, the pastor said, you two have been honeymooning, you need to get up here and get right. You don't, you don't get married and do what y'all been doing all, all month and miss church. You know what they did? They got up and went to the altar and, and asked for the church to forgive me. Can you imagine me doing that on a Sunday morning? I see you back there, Hyde. You better get up here right now. Uh, but, the, but the idea, it makes us very nervous. But the idea historically and biblically is restoration and reconciliation. 
But also something I think we're missing in our current day is the purity of the bride of Christ. You know, we live in a mixed up, crazy world. I I use this as an example all the time. Jokingly, we don't even know who can go into a bathroom anymore. I mean, that's mixed up. We've gotten that far. The one place that the world ought to see truth, loving truth, should be the bride of Christ. The one place that they ought to be able to see true love, true understanding of truth. Now, you can love someone and disagree with them. I've raised children. The worst thing that we can do is love someone so much we never discipline them. We love them. It's the idea that people see, as I preached this morning, that people of grace understand that our life is different. 1 Peter 1, 15. 1 Peter 1, 15, we think about the purity of the church. Uh, we never need to forget that this is the bride of Christ. Uh, someone shared with me one time that uh, is the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament. You betcha. He is the same God. Uh, he, he dealt with people in a very severe way when we get, went against his holiness and, and who he was. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 uh, but as you who is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. But as he who has called you is holy, as God is holy, you be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The church is just not an organization. It's just not an assembly with brick and mortar. It is literally uh, the temple of God. Uh, and and we, we look at our life and our responsibility and what we're doing as believers and is to, to, to protect the purity of the church. Uh, it, it, we are more concerned about what Christ thinks about us and we are more concerned about standing before the Lord and being held accountable and God using us than we are anything else. And that's hard. I can remember sitting at a deacon's meeting in, in, a, in a previous church setting and very concerned about uh, an individual in a small town that was just living openly opposed to the thing to the gospel and, and the effect and the witness and the testimony it would have against our church. And I remember asking the deacons to pray about it and, and say, you know, somebody needs to go talk with them. And I remember one of our faithful deacons who was a sweet man, just we cannot say a word. If we say anything to him, he'll leave, the cousins will leave, their nephews will leave, the, uh, the tithing will go down. And Now that's a real concern, is it not? But yet, can you imagine standing before the Lord one day and saying, well, we don't want to make people mad. We don't want people to think, well, no, we, in a lovingly way, we don't really care what people think. We're concerned about who thinks, what God thinks. And so, you know, to, to hear that, that is our, our first reaction is feeling. How do we feel about something? So we need to take the purity of the church uh, and the sacredness of the church. Look at 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It has actually been, verse 1, it has actually been reported among you and of a kind that there has actually been reported there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans for a man has his father's wife. Notice verse 2. Are you arrogant? You know, Paul is saying, are you, are you so arrogant that you would embrace this pagan, sexually moral lifestyle in your midst. It's, it's, a, it's the type of sin that is ongoing, that is open. Are you so arrogant to think that? He said, are you arrogant? Ought you not rather mourn? 
Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For although absent in body, I'm present in the spirit. And Paul is admonishing them, even though he's not there, that he's delivering this message. Look at verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you might have a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Whatever, we, whatever it takes, we're willing to say blatant, ongoing, open sin that is defying the goodness and the nature of God and his word. And there's no lack of repentance. The Lord says, are we so arrogant to think that that's not something that needs to be dealt with? I thought about from an Old Testament usage, uh, Joshua 7 and 8, and it's talking about the blessing of the people of Israel. Uh, The nature of God does not change. And so what he was expecting of the people of Israel with his truth and his moral absolute is the idea, I'm not blessing you because there's sin in the camp. Now, just think about that for a minute. Now, you think about the church of Acts and Ananias and Sapphira bringing the offering. They brought an unworthy offering. Now, we don't know what was going on, but they brought an unworthy offering. God took their life. They died at the, you know, they, 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 this wasn't an offering plate pass. They didn't have offering envelopes, you know, like we do. We, we, you know, I always turn my offering envelope upside down or we take our dollar bill and fold it up and, you know, crinkle it. If it's for real cheap, we really crinkle it up. We don't, you know. Forgot to bring our money, so we crinkle up our dollar and fit it under somebody else's. You, you came and brought your offering to the Lord, and you brought it into the altar, and the Lord took their life. For what reason? Because the Lord would not allow that, that attitude and that behavior in the church because of why? The church was an early church. The church was getting started, and, the, and God would not allow that church to lose its influence. And I'm afraid what has happened in our current culture is you very rarely hear of anything like that taking place. We are so afraid to address things. Even though Scripture clearly lays out, we go to that person, we address that. i give you a great example of, of a situation that I was put in. We had a faithful church member for many years. It was one of our faithful Sunday school teachers. Um, over about two or three weeks, he had some things evidently going on in his life. And he began to sit in Sunday school class and he'd talk about the staff and he was talking about the deacon. So he's teaching a Sunday school class and, well, you know, sometimes I agree with the pastor, sometimes not. You know, sometimes I do this. And then one week it was, well, you know, I'm a lot more godlier than the deacons we have here. And I'm a, so it just kept getting worse. And so finally a, a, a Sunday school person came to me and says, Pastor, you need to know this. Well, I got one or two choices as a pastor. What are those choices? Do absolutely nothing? What's that going to turn out to look like? Or I, I go to him biblically. And going to someone biblically is, is face-to-face, eyeball to eyeball and heart-to-heart. And I just said, brother, I don't know what you're going through. I love you. I'm your pastor. I'm your brother in Christ. You cannot continue believing that and saying that and teaching an adult Sunday school class. He said, well, I tell you what. If you're telling me I can't teach an adult Sunday school class, I'll leave this church, my wife will leave this church, and we'll take our money with us. You know what happened? He left the church, his wife left the church, and his money went with him, and he was a faithful giver, and we had a bigger budget that year after that than we'd ever had before. And you ask yourself, was that difficult? Yes, that was difficult. Did that, did that expose some things in the church? We could have just hit it. Nobody would have ever known it. We're just, a, you know, no. It, it caused some tension. It, it caused some things to be known. We replaced that teacher uh, to this day. I don't, I don't know what's going on in his life spiritually, but it's, it's something that, that needs to be done. So 
It's done because we, we love them. It's done because we love the Lord. It's done because we love the church. Now, here's the thing we need to realize. We're real quick to want to point out the sins of everybody else, right? I mean, I can look over there and say, well, you and you and you, and you're just going to fire right back. You know, what we're talking about here is when there's things going on that we know are not right, we know they're not biblical, it is a, a progressive, ongoing, open sin, and it is something that biblically we cannot question and is something that we need to deal with. Pastor Matt, I've talked almost 15 well, I'm minutes. Well, I'm going to keep so going on this one. You keep so. going on that one. <laughs> uh, I'll just put some mechanical stuff to it. Since, uh, that was um, a little bit of biblical explanation about what it's for. I think if we look at it um, systematically from the Bible, how uh, church discipline works, because the, the second part of the question says, what does it look like, and uh, can a church be healthy without it? And then, of course, the answer to the last question is no. A church cannot be healthy without church discipline. It cannot be, it cannot be something that a church says, we don't do that here. Because if a church says, we don't do that here, they're saying, we do not obey the word of God. And then they cease to be a church. I think the reformers said that there are three things that mark a healthy church, the preaching of the word, the administration of the ordinances, and church discipline. And this all falls within the context of what Pastor John's been talking about recently with the importance of church membership. Now, I want everybody to understand that this is not, um, you can't come to our church if you're in open sin. This is not, you cannot be a part of our church if you are living a sinful lifestyle. This is, you cannot be an active, healthy member of our church living in a sinful lifestyle or failing to attend the church you know the uh, hebrews 10 failing to gather with the the brothers which which is addressed there so no a church can't be healthy without it but what does it look like i think uh, what you read this morning from titus well actually you didn't read that it's, it's next week uh, titus 3 10 through 11 matthew 18 both of those follow a pattern someone's in an open sin it actually says if they if, if a brother offends you or there's something there's just something not right with the brother and I want you to notice that from Paul's standpoint and from Jesus, this doesn't come from the pastors down. This says, uh, if your brother offends you, first step is what? You go to that person. And if they will not repent, you then, you and someone else as a witness, go to that person. And then, if they still do not repent, step three, you bring it before the congregation, bring it before the whole church. And if they still won't repent, Jesus, Paul, the New Testament is very clear that if they still won't repent after those three opportunities for grace, they're to be removed. And, and, and like Pastor John said, that this removal is not, we caught you, ha, 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 get out of here, we don't want to see you anymore. This is a tearful, sorrowful thing to excommunicate someone from the local body because this is, we've offered you chance after chance after chance after chance to repent and you will not. And your life is not showing fruits of repentance and faith right now. You're not acting like a saved person. And so you can no longer carry the name of our church and our Lord on you in this way. That's taking the, names, the name of the Lord in vain. Literally, that's what it means to take the name of the Lord in vain. And so kicking them out, removing them, is not a hateful thing. It is a loving thing to say, look, you need to repent. And if they repent, Galatians 6, restore them with gentleness and with love. The actual, the hateful thing the really hateful thing would be to leave that person unrepentant. Both hateful to them because you're not loving them enough to call their sin out. And it's also hateful to the body of believers because it's like a disease. They'll just infest and, and spread. I, I think about, my, I mentioned the 80s. I, I think about my life. Now, I, I was a believer. I gave my life to Christ. 
and I got away from church. You were born in the 80s. You never saw Herschel Walker run a football, bless your heart. Um, so, I, I, you know, if, if, so I'm, eight, I'm in the 80s. I haven't been in church in a long time. I don't go to church. It's obvious I'm not going to church. What if, what if our church really valued their membership? What if First Baptist, fill in the blank, what if that church really valued membership, really valued that we're a family? You know, can you imagine going to Christmas gathering and somebody goes, where's your sister? Oh, we don't know. They, they've been running crazy for years. We have no idea, but don't say anything. So what if our church really valued biblical nurturing? And what if about four or five years through the 80s, I get a phone call, or, or you know, and it's one of our faithful deacons that I would have grown up with, and they said, would you mind if me and so-and-so come by and visit you? Now, as a teenage, 20-something-year-old running and carousing and acting like a crazy person, I don't know how I would have responded, but I know now, looking back, I kind of wish somebody would have done that. I wish somebody would have held me accountable to what God's Word says about, I thought you gave your life to Christ. I thought Brother Jack baptized you. I thought you grew up going to this church. Now, what part of what your life is doing now is bringing glory and honor to the Lord? Would I have probably been mad at that moment? Sure, I'd have been mad at that moment. Would I have probably stomped out and told him to leave? Probably so. But what do you think would have been happening because I'm a child of God when they left and I'm sitting there at night, uh, that night laying in bed looking up at the ceiling? What do you think the Holy Spirit's going to do? It's going to wear me out. Now, would that have been something that I didn't want to have happen? No, I would not have wanted to have happen, but I almost wish it would have happened because somebody would have said, this is one of ours. We don't know where they are, but we do know where they are, and we want them back of what they're doing and and living within the family. So be very clear. All we're saying is historically and biblically, church membership was meaningful, and we loved one another. And it's not about offending or not offending and purging roles and doing that. This is just looking at our church family and one of us is not here. One of us is not living correctly. One of us is, is, you know, uh, because when you don't live obediently, God's going to be very consistent in in punishing that. And so we're trying to help them with that. Any other uh, comments? uh, No, I'm I'm good. Next question. How do we know, and I'm going to add this, Pastor Matt's going to address this one. How do we know... It's okay to eat certain meats considered unclean in the Old Testament. So some, some meats in the Old Testament are considered unclean. How do we know it's okay to eat them? Uh, well, I don't want to address this one all by myself, so you can okay. chime in when you feel like it. Uh, in, Genesis, <laughs> in Genesis 9, uh, when God, God is giving a new, a new covenant, a new blessing to Noah, uh, we, we read these words, God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you sh- and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you green plants, I give you everything. Uh, but you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is the blood. And for your life, blood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require from it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of Man, so uh, this question could uh, be beneficial if you're dealing with someone who's, um, let's say, they're Orthodox observing Jew that has uh, that they follow the kosher 
uh, dietary laws from Leviticus 11 and other places in the Old Testament, uh, or if you're dealing with uh, our friends, the, the Seventh-day Adventists, which there are a lot in this area. And there's, there's laws in the Old Testament that forbid the eating of shellfish, the eating of pork, I mean, boiling uh, meat in milk and mixing mixed meats together. And so some of our Seventh-day Adventist friends uh, will say, well, they won't eat pork or they won't eat shellfish because they're observing those Old Testament uh, things. And they'll quickly point out to you that God says, when he gives those commands in Leviticus and throughout the, the old, old Covenant, he says, hey, these things are forever, and they're for you and your children. And this is part of the covenant. This is part of the law of God that you don't eat pork. You don't eat shellfish. You don't eat these things that are considered unclean. So the, our Seventh-day Adventist friends or even Jewish friends would say, well, how do you claim to believe the Bible when you come to the New Testament and you suddenly think it's okay to eat everything? And uh, a common response from Seventh-day Adventists is, well, Jesus was a Jew. His disciples were Jewish. They followed the kosher restrictions. They followed the dietary guidelines of the, the Old Covenant. Why don't we as Christians? Shouldn't we? Because we were followers of Jesus and we shouldn't obey those things. Well, I think there's a lot to take in here. And so I'm just going to uh, quickly boil it down to a few passages. If you write down Acts 10, 9 through 7, uh, 16, Acts 10, 9 through 16, this is a good place to go. I don't know if it's a good place to stop because this is when Peter receives the vision of the sheet uh, coming down from heaven, and, and it's filled with all these unclean animals, quote-unquote, old covenant unclean animals. And God says, uh, rise, kill, and eat. And then Peter objects, obviously, he's a Jew, he says, these are unclean, and God says to him in response, who are you to call something I have made clean, unclean? Now, here's why I wouldn't stop here, because the point of this passage isn't, Christians can eat everything. The point of that passage is, God is about to send Peter into the house of a Gentile to preach the gospel to him. If you understand that culture, you understand that was a no-no. You don't go to the house of Gentiles. You don't converse with Gentiles. They're unclean. And so God was using this as a picture to teach Peter. It wasn't about the food so much as it was about what he's about to call God to do. But it is an important place to start because then, and you can turn here if you go to Acts 15... what we might call the Jerusalem Council. What had begun to happen in the early church here is Paul and um, Barnabas at that time were going out and, and preaching the gospel and uh, Philip had gone into Samaria and, and Gentiles had become, had started to be converted to the faith. Samaritans, non-Jews. And so there arose contentions, obviously, between people who were coming to faith in Christ from a Jewish background they're bringing their dietary restrictions. I mean, they, they still have the, the law. They knew the Old Covenant, what we call the Old Testament. They knew that. They followed it. They believed it. They just embraced Jesus as their Messiah. Now, if you add to that mix Greeks and Romans and everyone else who did not come from a Jewish background, not, they're not bringing the baggage of the Old Testament. They don't have any idea about these dietary restrictions. They are being converted to Christ. Now, the Old Testament is still scripture to them at that point, but they're not familiar with it. They don't know it. They're not Jewish. They're uncircumcised. They don't observe the Jewish feasts and the holidays. They certainly don't understand these dietary restrictions. You have some Jews saying, these Gentiles need to, one, get circumcised. Two, they need to follow the Old Testament law. And so there was a lot of fighting going on. And so this council was called to determine what is to be done. There's questions that came before the apostles there's questions as to whether or not these men should be circumcised. There's questions as to whether or not they could eat. 
So these men, the apostles, the Jerusalem council, they meet, they pray, and more importantly, they ask the Holy Spirit to lead them. And this was their finding in Acts 16, no, sorry, Acts 15, verse 19, 29. My words are all mixed up. Acts 15, 29. This was the conclusion. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. So at the end of the whole thing, you can read that whole, uh, that whole scripture passage on your own there, but in Acts 16, what they do is they say, Peter, James, and others say, this whole dietary restriction, the old covenant law was a weight even for us as Jews. We have no right to impose that weight on Gentiles to whom that is not their heritage or their, their faith. They're converted to Jesus. They're not converted first to Judaism and then to Jesus. They're converted to Jesus through the new covenant. And so these apostles say, here's what we'll say. For the sake, now underline this part in your heads, unless you're taking notes, then really underline it. For the sake of peace in the church. Okay? Not because eating strangled and bloody things is sinful in and of itself. But for the sake of peace in the church. Tell them to avoid things that have been strangled and things that still have the blood in them, undercooked meat. Now, why would they say this? And you look at the two things that surround it. Avoid things that have been sacrificed to idols, number one. And then after that, avoid sexual immorality. So if you put those things in context and you begin to understand the picture, we're talking about pagans who are not Jews, who are being converted to Jesus, and they're given these four restrictions... Nothing strangled, no blood, not sacrificed to idols, and avoid sexual immorality. And if you look at those four things, those are four things that would have been very, very, very prominent in pagan worship of false gods. In their temples, sexual immorality, eating things that had been strangled, certainly things that had been offered to idols. And so these apostles are saying, you Gentiles, you don't have to convert to Judaism and then become a Christian. But you do have to completely leave your old pagan worship behind. You have to get rid of all of that stuff. And more than that, even if those things aren't inherently, inherently sinful, except for sexual immorality, even if eating food sacrificed to idols isn't inherently sinful, think 1 Corinthians 10, you know, Paul says these gods are nothing, so you're free to eat that meat. But he says, look, but if it offends your brother, abstain from it. So this isn't a matter of do's and don'ts and you can't eat this and you can't eat this as if we were following some kind of regulation. What they have here, the only sanctions they implied on Gentile believers were these and then they said, and it's for the peace of the church. Not because pork is sinful. Praise God, pork is not sinful. Yes, yes. Amen. Pork belly is, is the third ordinance. Baptism and... Pulled pork, pulled pork. Uh, pork belly is what I said, but pulled pork too. Um, so that's, that's my thinking on it. Well, it, it, it really, it even segues into the next question about Israel. It, it depends on, for those, and I do want to invite you, if you're not serving and working and leading or involved with the choir on Wednesday nights, we'd love to have you at Bible study at 6 o'clock on Wednesday nights. Uh, I lead the Bible study in the uh, fellowship hall. We've been looking at Galatians. 
Uh, the idea that we are, we're justified by faith in Christ. It is Christ and Christ alone. We don't have to go back to the law. We don't have to go back to the Old Testament. And, and Paul, and through the Spirit, is just pleading with them that you are free in Christ. You are crucified with Christ. And I think the dietary restrictions in why some people practice that, I think it's an understanding of how we view the Old Covenant and the Old Law and the commands that were given and, and the things that are in place in the Old Testament uh, in relationship with the, the New Testament. My answer to, to uh, the, uh, the dietary restrictions, because people will say what well, the Jerusalem Council said, I, I think we look at what's going on, but more than anything, we look at that's the old law. And, and if we pick and choose things out of the law, we have to do all the law. I mean, we can't just say, well, I'm going to do this and this, but not everything else. And nowhere do we see that. We can't just pick and choose what we want to do. Uh, and so, if, if, and I'll say this because it really will go into the next question about um, how should Christians view Israel? What does the Bible say about Israel today? That question, the Old Testament dietary restrictions, as we read Leviticus, as we read those, here's the key to that. Here, here's the way for Christians today to read the Bible. When we typically read a book, we're reading the first of a book, and, and we're allowing what we're picking up on, and it carries what we're going through the end of the book. So everything that we read at the beginning, we're answering questions that we're going through in the beginning, God. Well, we don't read the Bible that way. Here's how we read the Bible. We read the Bible because we know the New Testament. We read all of the Bible with the New Testament being the lens that we focus on everything else. Okay? That's game changer. So when we see the Old Testament law, we think about the sacrifice. When we think about the New Testament, what do we, when we think about a sacrifice, what do we do? We think about Christ. And so when we, we read the Old Testament, what we're doing is we're literally reading the Old Testament through the New Testament. The dietary restrictions of the Old Testament was, was showing the people, one, how to live in a desert with no refrigeration. Ever gotten sick off bad pork? Doesn't end well. Uh, this is how you live. This is what you do. This is the law. Here, try, to, try to carry this. Try to, try to carry the burden of the law and see how unsuccessful you are. And so all of the Old Testament was pointing toward the fulfillment in Christ. So the dietary restrictions, somebody said, well, the Old Testament says. I'm going to say, well, the Old Testament says a lot, you know, but we don't live under the Old Testament. You know, there's a lot of laws in the Old Testament for the nation of Israel, but we're not the nation of Israel. We don't, we don't live under the Old Covenant. So if you look at all of the Old Covenant, now, I'll go ahead and say this. I don't think any commandments of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament law, is binding today. Okay, just think about that. Some people would say, well, the, the, the Ten Commandments are still binding. That we, we have the Ten Commandments and those are binding. That, that the, the actual scripture there is, is binding. Well, if we adhere to that, then we've just taken part of the law out of the Old Testament and said that that part of the law is binding. The Ten Commandments is considered the moral law. Then you have the, the ceremonial law, the sacrificial system. Then you have the judicial law, all the do's and don'ts. And you get a boy, you got to get it straight and go to the priest and the ash on it and all that. The, the Ten Commandments was the moral law. Uh, and so some people would say, well, we still have to live by the Ten Commandments. Well, because of Christ, the, the Ten Commandments are no longer binding on us. 
Now, all of the precepts of the Ten Commandments, except for Sabbath worship, you can find written and, and lived out in the New Testament. It doesn't mean that we don't have to do that because the, the moral truths taught in the New Testament other than Sabbath worship is all found by the words of Christ in the New Testament. So let me just say this. As we go dietary law and we think about the nation of Israel, okay? Let's think about the nation of Israel. Where is the nation of Israel today? Well, it depends, again, how you want to, what your hermeneutical approach to Scripture is. My hermeneutical approach to Scripture is the New Covenant. And so when people, we think about old Israel and and Israel, we have to understand what the Old Covenant was. Uh, The Old Covenant, uh, the Old Law, in Genesis, it it begins to talk about there's a Messiah that needs to come. And everything I believe in the Old Testament, this is so important to grasp, everything in the Old Testament to me is a picture of what is to come. Does that make sense? It's a picture of everything that is going to be fulfilled in Christ. Does that make sense? It's the old, it's pointing toward the new. So we have the old covenant, I think, is a, is a temporary covenant, and it's a picture of what is completely fulfilled in Christ. The law was done away with, and it is fulfilled in Christ. And so as we, even as we hear that, even as we say that out loud, we know that makes sense biblically. Everything in the old is pointing toward Christ coming and his death, burial, resurrection, and fulfillment. So then we have to ask ourselves, what about the Abrahamic covenant? Because we think about the nation of Israel, boy, we will get fired up about Israel, won't we? They're blessed people, and there's a blessed land, and even today we just get so land, 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 land. Well, let's listen to that. God made a promise to Abraham. He said, I will bless you and you will be a great people. There will be the the number of the stars. That's a picture. The picture and the physical uh, understanding of that covenant was Abraham's physical descendants, the Jews. Right? We see that. We see that. He tells Abraham, if you... Familiar with the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, 13, 15, and 17. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to multiply your seed. Where we heard the word seed before the New Testament. Who is that seed? Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you a land. That's the big thing now. The land. Israel's land. The land. We get so hung up on the land. He told Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. It's going to be a, the, the, the Canaan land, the promised land. That's a picture. All right, that's a picture of something that's not yet fulfilled in Abraham's day. Look through the cross and tell me what that land is. Where's our eternal dwelling place? Where's the promised land? Think about those good old southern gospel songs. We're going over to Canaan land. Where is that? Eternity. Abrahamic covenant is a, is a, is a physical picture of a what to come. We're reading everything through the fulfillment is found in Christ. All the Old Testament law, all the Old Testament promises, everything that God said this will happen to Abraham, it was a physical covenant that will take place. But turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jokingly, I say this. I never want to say anything disrespectful about the word but there have been conversations I've had with people that did not want to hear the word or the truth. Uh, and, and I tell people kind of jokingly, if you don't believe me, believe Jesus. Believe the words in red. 
Jesus himself said right after the Sermon on the Mount, and, and, and the Sermon on the Mount is talking about the, who we are in Christ, the, the fulfillment of the new covenant, the old law, the new covenant. And this is what Christ said. I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to, to do away with them, to say they were wrong, to say they weren't there. What does the word say? I came to do what? Fulfill. Christ didn't come to do away with the old law. He came to fulfill it. The old covenant is pointing to the new covenant. So as we look at the Bible, we stand there and our backs to Genesis and we're looking through the Old Testament, through the cross, every promise, everything, everything, everything points to the gospel. Everything points to Christ. Everything points to Christ. Abraham, I'm going to bless you and make you a great people. It's fulfilled in Christ. Abraham, I'll give you a land that will flow. That is fulfilled in Christ. Everything that we have of the old covenant is fulfilled in Christ. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Those on our Wednesday night Bible study, we're going through Galatians. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Christ says, I came to fulfill the law. Galatians chapter 3, beginning there in verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. All the promises made to Abraham and his offspring, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is who? Christ. Christ. Think about that Sunday school lesson where uh, the son is about to be killed on the altar. What's in the, God has provided what? A lamb. Won't we love that? God has a song. I'd sing it for you, but I don't sound pretty. God has provided a lamb. We know who that lamb is. Who's that lamb? Jesus Christ. Every promise, everything, everything in the New Old Testament is pointing toward Jesus Christ. Look at Galatians 3.29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. 2 Corinthians 1.20. 2 Corinthians 1.20. For all the promises of God find their yes, I love this, find their yes in him. It's all about Jesus. It's all about the gospel. And no matter how long we live, no matter how long the church exists, no matter what goes on, how many generations follow behind us, everything is about Jesus Christ. You know, everything is about who we are in Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to the glory of his father. So, the old covenant is temporary and it's a physical picture of what is to come. The new covenant, it, it is a permanent and it is a spiritual fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. Now, when we think about Israel, we get all upset, don't we? You know, there, there is this sensation with things of prophecy. There's always been a, a sensation with the nation of Israel uh, because of the Old Testament promises. And I would simply say, Israel is, is going... To, here, here's how I like to say this. There, there's a, a, a theological system, dispensationalism. Don't we love all the isms? Uh, the majority of, of our current Baptists would, would probably... Most of Baptists would probably fall under some form of dispensationalism. And even if you know what, don't know what dispensationalism is, it would say this... That God is not through with Israel yet. That the rapture will take place. 
Okay, now just, I'm going to say this out loud. That's what I say around the house. Sometimes I think we need to say things out loud and go, that doesn't make any sense. There's going to be a rapture. Horn's going to toot. We're going to scoot. It's going to be a secret rapture. That's good. Clothes will be laying around here. I'm not going to be here. How do you know? Because I've rented my sin and placed my faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? The dispensational understanding is that once the rapture takes place, God gets the church out of the way, then he gets Israel back in order. And so during the times of tribulation, there will be a, a, a restoration of the nation of Israel, and then when we go into the millennial reign, the nation of Israel will become back to be the nation of Israel. There will be symbolic uh, worship in the altar. There will be symbolic, uh, what am I trying to say, sacrifices at the altar, and that the nation of Israel will be restored. Now, just say that out loud. We're not debating dispensationalism, this, this pastor talk. If we believe that what we're doing today and what Christ has done is temporary so that the nation of Israel can be restored, what in the world have we just done with what Christ did on the cross? We have just said that what Christ did on the cross is not enough, that we have to revert back to the law. So somebody says, Pastor, what are you saying? I would simply say this. It's obvious that God has got a, had a special purpose with the nation of Israel, but I think some of us are in this Israel worship mindset, not us as in this building, but some in Christian circles are, are in this mostly Israel worship that almost kind of makes me uneasy. Uh, I know that we have a lot of television preachers, and it's like every time you turn it on, we're getting the news report out of Israel, and I'm sitting there thinking, why are we so concerned? Israel is going to come into a relationship with God. How? 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 If, I'm sharing, if I'm witnessing to a Jew, how are they going to come into a relationship with God? By, the, by their sacrifices? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. If there's going to be a revival in the nation of Israel, it's not going to be the church has got to get out of the way so God can deal with Israel. No, Israel becomes part of the church. We don't become part of Israel. So when, when Christ died on the cross and buried and rose again on the third day, everybody comes to the Lord Jesus Christ the same way. How? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. So we could say, well, it's obvious, you know, and we jokingly say, don't mess with Israel, their land. Well, that's fine, but there's not going to be a further something that's going to take place just for the nation of Israel because we've already dealt with that. We've already dealt with sin. We've already dealt with the picture. It has been fulfilled in Christ. Christ himself said, I didn't come to abolish. I came to fulfill. Does that make sense? Yeah. It, it takes a little while to chew on that, doesn't it? So a lot of times people say, Israel, Israel, that, that is fine. We, we had a friend that, that, and I say, I think it's an unhealthy thing about Israel. We had a, a friend we met in Minnesota, and I hope they don't listen to this podcast, this thing. You know, she would literally wear, you know, an Israel t-shirt to church. I'm going, I don't get it. I understand the old law and I understand the, the, the nation of Israel and I understand what God was doing. But we are the spiritual Israel to me, the church. We are the called out ones. We are the, remember Peter, first Peter, chosen race, holy nation. Who is that? Is that Israel? No, it's the church. Israel, 
as the Israelites come to faith in Christ, they become part of the church. But we're on a, on a progression, old law, new covenant. We're all heading in the same direction this way. We are waiting on the Lord's return. We are waiting with glory, but there's not going to be two lines. There's not going to be Israelites and Gentiles. We're all together as the body of Christ. And so the question was, I probably from the news and, and, you know, we didn't vote for something for Israel, this, and it kind of stirred up the evangelical world. And so I think that question, I, I don't remember who asked that question, that's not important, but I think that came from that. And I think if we're not careful, we realize, because somebody said, well, you never talk about Israel. How come you don't preach about Israel? How come you don't talk about, well, I just, I'm, I'm more, I don't, I talk about the church. I talk about who we are in Christ. I don't see a, a future fulfillment of the, the land, the physical land. That physical land was a picture of what is to come that has now been fulfilled in Christ. Comments? Amen. Amen. Even, the, even about the land, in Hebrews 11, right, the faith chapter, yes. uh, it talks about those who were seeking a land, and they were, they, uh, at least spiritually, they understood they weren't seeking a land that was made by hands. They were seeking something um, beyond themselves. You, you've quoted from First Peter, and I wanted to read that because there's um, a couple things that people uh, tend to gravitate towards when it comes to Israel. The land, the temple, the priesthood, the, the sacrifices, all those things have to be restored. If, if they're taking those Old Testament promises and saying God is going to fulfill these to Israel literally and physically sometime in the future, that's where you create this dilemma of having to get the church out of the way through some sort of secret rapture. On the rapture, I remember being, when I was little, you know, and I would always want to know, you know, where did this come from? What, is it, what does it mean to be saved? Is that language in the Bible? What does it mean to do this? Is that language in the Bible? And I remember always hearing about this rapture thing and how we're going to suddenly disappear and then there's a seven years. And, and I remember just, I felt like Billy Bob in uh, Sling Blade, you know. I've been, I've been reading the Bible and uh, all those things you tell me are in there and in there. <laughs> That's what I always felt like, looking for, looking for this stuff. And, and we create these things because of that. Where, where's the temple? Where's the land? Where's the nation of Israel? And so we've, we, we concoct this, this, this idea of, of us got to get out of the way and God's going to go back to plan A and we're plan B. But listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 4. And he's talking to the believers, the church. And this is a Jewish man talking to Gentiles and Jews. As you come to him, you're a living stone rejected by men. But in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. You're a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then if you go down to verse 9, talking to believers now, the church, you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And I think it's just utterly astounding that those quotes that he's, he's quoting from the Old Testament, things that applied to Israel, and he's applying them to the church. So it, we shouldn't get nervous like, oh, the, the church has replaced Israel. No, the church is Israel. Yeah. Jesus is Israel. We are in him. It, it, we ought to also, I look at it this way. I, I get excited thinking about it this way. We'll say, oh, don't mess with Israel. Don't mess with the church. Mm. It's not going to end well. Don't mess with the church. Don't mess with God's people. You mess with God's people, it doesn't end well, right? We are God's people. We are it. 
Uh, and, and I do believe in a return of Christ and, you know, what takes place with all that stuff in between. It doesn't matter. I do believe the horn toots, we scoot. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We're gone. It don't, whether it's secret or not or seven, it doesn't matter. We, that can be another question for another quarter. Uh, but I do believe the Lord's going to return, but it's not going to be all the Gentiles in the left lane. Well, we'll let the Baptists go to the right side. But anybody, you know, hold on. Everybody get out of the way. The Israelites are coming. No, we're all going, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I do believe, if you look at Scripture, I do believe during the time of tribulation, there is going to be a time of tribulation. And whether you believe it's returned there or there, there is going to be a time of outpouring of God's tribulation. I do think there's going to be a massive revival through the Israelites through the gospel. Through the gospel, not get the church out of the way. So then the, the land, if you notice that, that all the land, 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 that's all Old Testament. This is because it's an Old Testament picture. All the New Testament reference is all fulfilled in Christ, fulfilled in Christ, fulfilled in, in, in Christ. So, yeah. Will you give us 15 more minutes? 15 more minutes, we got the last question, okay? Uh, and I know we don't get to answer. You know, we, we, you probably are thinking about other things and, and we're trying to be... Because uh, these are, you know, these are questions you're asking, and they're great questions. And it's hard more to answer. Thing. You I'm can sorry, ask. Just one yes. more, one more little tidbit. Yes. Uh, <laughs> the, the nation of Israel and the Abrahamic covenant. If we go yes. there, it's never ever been about birth. It was in the Old Testament to an extent, but when you come to the New Testament and you have the Pharisees coming to John the Baptist, remember, and they want to be baptized, or they're at least standing there watching, and John the Baptist says, "You're, you're a brood of vipers." Who warned you to come before the, the day of the, the judgment? And then he tells them, don't presume to say to yourselves that we're the children of Abraham because you're Jewish by birth. He says, don't presume to yourself. God could raise up children of Abraham from these rocks. So it's never been about birth or lineage or ethnicity. And then I think that's when you come to Galatians and it's clearly we are children of Abraham, not by birth or lineage or ethnicity, but through faith in Christ. And so when we read those Old Testament commands to the Israelites, get excited. Yes. You know, the land, the people, the promises, they are fulfilled. They are answered, but it's in Christ. Last question. This question was given to us from a witnessing standpoint. Uh, I'll read the entire question. Uh, with homosexuality being so prevalent in our culture, do you believe people are born this way or is it a lifestyle choice? How would you hold, great question, how would you hold a face-to-face -face conversation with someone who claims to be a Christian but also claims to be a homosexual? So, Matt, you're going to take the lead on this one, and I'm oh, okay. following up. Um, first of all, it's always helpful to start a question like this out with um, basic foundational statements because as we answer questions like this and you get into you know, nuance of going here and going there and trying to explain things, um, there can be like, now wait a minute, is he saying this? Wait a minute, is he saying that? So we'll start out with the basic things up front. Homosexuality is, is sin. Man with a man, woman with a woman, and any other combination except that which God has ordained as a man with one woman for life, any other combination outside of those, those boundaries is sinful. It is sin. It's an abomination. Okay, there's that. Um, secondly, a homosexual lust, same-sex attraction, is sinful. Woman for woman, man for man, is sinful. Okay, so there's that. Blanket statement up front. And yeah, when now... You, when you said, let me read what you're saying. 
you said that any 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 relationship outside of one man and one woman, you meant, you were talking about outside of marriage. Yes. Anything, and I want to clarify that homosexuality is a sin. Any sex outside of marriage is what a sin. I remember when I first got here. I don't offend. I don't. I'm not pointing finger at anybody. I remember when I first got here, and uh, we were still doing ministry in Lake Lamada, and somebody said, "The pastor." Don't go too much on living together. A lot of people live together to save Social Security. That's a sin. Whether you're 80 or 20, that's a sin. So I wanted to clarify that what you meant by any sex out of the confines of marriage is a sin. Homosexuality, adultery, premarital, all that. Amen. I wanted to clarify uh, yeah. that. Uh, the, the question, though, becomes very quickly for people... Uh, what this middle question says, do you believe people are born this way or is it a lifestyle choice? And I think the answer to both of those questions is maybe, yes, and no. It is all the above. That's, and I, that's clear. Any it's other very questions? clear, yes. Good <laughs> Did night. that clear thing up for us? Thank you. God bless you. <laughs> You're just, no. Um, On the first question, do you believe people are born this way? I, th I think that on this issue, we have let the culture dictate the lines of battle. The culture says, but I feel this way. I want this. This is my sexual preference. This is my sexual identity. I did not choose to feel that way. I did not choose to think that way or to lust that way. It has come naturally to me therefore now here's where they go astray therefore it cannot be sinful because if this came to me by birth or through nature or through genes or hormones or psychologically or subliminally if those things are true and it was not a quote-unquote choice to feel that way their reasoning is this is the world now God must have made me this way God makes no mistakes Therefore, this is not a sinful lifestyle. Now, unfortunately, evangelical Christians for a very long time have taken that bait. And they have tried to argue on that line. And so, unfortunately, me, many evangelicals thought, okay, they're saying they're born this way, so it's not a sin. So, the opposite must be true. You're not born this way. It's completely a choice. Therefore, it is a sin. And I think by doing that and swinging completely to the opposite side of the spectrum, we miss the truth right there that's in the middle. The Bible is very, very, very clear. After Genesis 3, we are born into a world that has fallen. We're born into a sinful world. We don't have a sin nature because we only have one nature that's human. But we do have a sinful nature. And it is completely depraved. Fallen at every aspect. That's what depravity, total depravity means. It's all the way to the core that we are sinful. Our choices are sinful. Our wants are sinful. Our desires are sinful. Our, everything about us is sinful and is tainted by sin. So if you were to say, is someone born, let's, say some, let's ask the question, is some, can someone be born with same-sex attraction or the inclination to same-sex attraction? The answer is yes. Because the answer to any other sin that you are, have an inclination toward, alcoholism, gossiping, gam gambling, dishonesty, stealing, 
Think about this. Ungodly lust of any kind. Ungodly lust of any kind is on the same level in God's book as this kind of fornication. And so the answer is they can be. Someone can be born with a natural inclination. By natural, I mean physical. Okay, Paul clearly says these things are not natural in, in a godly sense, but from a physical sense, someone can be born with an inclination or proclivity to that kind of sin. I don't think that if we're honest with ourselves, if we talk to some people or know people, that's important for you to know people who have these struggles, know someone like that and ask them, did you make a choice to feel that way? I don't think anybody in their right mind in our culture for the past maybe 100 years, when this has become a thing, I don't think anybody in their right mind would, would choose to feel that way or would choose to lust and desire that way. I think if they could change it, back when it was the norm to be straight and heterosexual, I think that they would say, I'll change it in a heartbeat, absolutely. Now here's where we have to say that. Here's where I have to turn the, turn the page. Just because something is, quote unquote, natural to you, something you were born with as an inclination or a proclivity, does not mean it's not sinful. Because we're born into a fallen world, because we're born under Adam, we are all born with indwelling sin. Ephesians 2, we're all born under Adam, dead in our sins and trespasses, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. We have no self-control over our lusts and our passions. So yes, everyone is born into that sinful system. Okay? That does not mean that it's excused. Because God has told, that's why he gives us the word. He says, look, your world is messed up. Your life is messed up. Your desires are messed up. Your sexual lust is messed up. But I've designed it to go this way. This will make you happy. This will give you abundant life. This will give you blessing. Follow this. Obey this. I think where we get into the choice category is when we're dealing with someone who has same-sex attraction or is inclined to that direction and they willfully make a choice to no longer do war with it as sin, to no longer struggle with it as a sin, but they make a willful choice to turn the page and live in that lifestyle. And that's when they say, I do have these feelings, I do have these inclinations, and they are not sinful. And there is no need for me to suppress them or to bring them under the law of God. Now I'm just going to live like this. So I think the answer to that question is yes, no. There can be any kind of factors. There can be psychological, subliminal, uh, nature or upbringing factors. There could be hormonal, chromosomal, genetical, genetical, uh, <laughs> gene factors that, that factor into this thing. But at the end of the day, we don't look to science or look to the world and say, try to reason this out on your own. You know, we look to the word of God and we say, okay, maybe you do feel that way. Maybe you never really made a choice to feel that way. God says it's sinful, and he has something better for you. And if that means you're single for the rest of your life, and you live in celibacy, love Jesus. Fall in love with Jesus. Serve Jesus. Find joy in the church. I, I think that's just the biblical answer to this. And I think that if we go too far one way or the other, we either say, no, anybody that thinks that way is unsaved. 
Or on the other hand, we say, no, anybody that lives like that is perfectly fine and you're okay and it's all about love and unity and peace and respect. And, and, and we just mar the message of the gospel when we go either way. You know, and, and I think in our current culture, it is just so in our face, you know. Um, and Matt and I talked through all of these questions in detail. We didn't just come up here tonight and just wing it. Uh, we, we all know people that will tell you, I have known this since the day I was born. I mean, when I was old enough to get it, I've always liked that. I, I understand that. I know people that I have known from, from day one that, you know, I'm, it might be a girl that was more, more masculine and, and, you know, was more comfortable in that way. I've known guys that when they were younger and they've just, you know, just, they, you know, one brother's a, this wasn't very manly and Joe Jock and the other brother was very, you know, th there's a tendency to say, well, something's going on. And I, I appreciate, Matt, the way you said that. There's something going on in all of us. I mean, that would be like me saying, you know, I was, I was born, you know, I just, I just love women and I was born that way. Sharon said, you may have been born that way, but you're going to die that way too, you know. <laughs> that, you know, that you just can't say that, that, you know. Well, my, in my family, we are just born liars, and we, you know, it's just historically, we, all of my family just lies, and all of my family slanders, and, all, and, and you, we know that. You can see patterns. You know, I could sit there and say, you know, there, you know, some, you can trace back to one, one of my grandparents on Ancestry.com, hyper, 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 you know, and I, I've birthed at least one just like me, but she's a girl. And, you know, and you can say that, that from birth we saw that, but you don't say, well, I'm just born that way. And so I think the issue that we have as a church is that we all have a, a, a natural, unnatural, sinful tendency to do things but we don't, and we allow the gospel and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, where it becomes difficult, and the question was about witnessing, what do you do? You know, it's like, you know, it, there, there, I think there's a line. I'll, I'll explain it this way. I think there's a line that you do have to draw a line in the sand with certain relationships. You know, your goal is to share the gospel, to lead people to a saving knowledge of Christ. You're there to help people. But I think it becomes a, an understanding, too, that let's say that, you know, one of, one of my best friends in the community is just an open, rampant adulterer. And I just think he's the greatest guy in the world, and I'm always hanging out with him. And, you know, I just gonna, I'm just going to love him the way he is and hope one day he comes to know Christ. Well, there's going to be a point in a time that somebody's going to say, yeah, but, but you're allowing that person to destroy who you are in Christ and the integrity of right and wrong. Well, I know, he just that's just the way he is, and he's always just running around with crazy women. That's all right. Sooner or later, you have, to, you have to draw a line in the sand and say, you know what, we love you, and we want you to understand what it means to know Christ. But it's very difficult as a church because we're never going to, like, shut the doors. Remember the story about the, the, the church outside of Cottondale? We have Koreans from that Cottondale area where all the deacons locked the door one night because an African-American came to Bible study and they want to make sure the blacks didn't come back Sunday morning. We didn't have no blacks up in here on Sunday morning. I think that the Spirit of God departed that place right then. You know, we, we don't shut the doors or exclude people, but part of being a part of the family is you're a born-again believer of Jesus Christ. If, if somebody, just say, I'm, I'm creating a question out of a question, somebody comes in there and goes, oh, there, there's the town adulterer wanting to join First Baptist Church. Welcome to the body of Christ. We would never do that. You know, and so what we have to do as a church, we have to love people enough to know. Here's the thing about it. If they are a Christian, 
they know their lifestyle's wrong. If they are born again, and I'm just this is pretty simplistic, if, if they know, if they are a born again believer of Jesus Christ, I know that I can live in sin for a season and then God begins to wear me out. We, we pray for people, we love them enough to say, I don't support what you're doing. You know, I am here for you. I am a biblical Christian. I stand on the word. The word says that a lot of things are right, a lot of things are wrong. I love you enough to tell you that you can find everything you're seeking in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the moment we begin to say that someone is born that way, we're just saying that we've given them license that their life is okay. It's going to be more difficult as a church. Uh, it's, it's getting harder and harder. I've never been asked to do a same-sex marriage. I've never, you know, the church has never been confronted with that. Uh, but we are living in a day and age where it's more and more difficult. But one of the, the things we can never do is to say, if someone is born with a tendency to do anything, the gospel can change that. Uh, the gospel is enough. Christ is enough. And, and, and I might add that there just a second because that, that, um, the whole idea of uh, what they call conversion therapy mm-hmm. and um, you know, the whole idea of trying to psychologically and spiritually or emotionally switch someone's sexual preference from, from, from gay to straight or from one gender identity to another or whatever our world has concocted these days um, is very controversial. And I think for Christians, even on the idea of conversion therapy, that the idea is, well, if we can just get your lust to switch from homosexual lust to heterosexual lust, hey, you'll be good then. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel says, be holy. And so someone is converted to Christ that deals with these kind of inclinations. I think it's not necessarily the kind of thing where they're just going to be zapped overnight and everything about them has changed. I mean, I don't think any one of us would say that about whatever sin we struggle with. I mean, maybe, but um, another thing, one more thing on that is the the evangelistic issue of it. I think if you look at Romans chapter 1, Paul clearly says that a man lying with a man as as he should with a woman is is, is sinful. And then a woman exchanging the, the natural relations with the man for that of a woman is sinful. But I think also it's important for us to look at what comes right after that. Right after he deals with homosexuality, he deals with other types of fornication. He deals with heartlessness ruthlessness, being cruel. And so we should easily say, yes, homosexuality is sin, dot, 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 but so is heartlessness. And if we go around labeling people and talking down to them, terrible, satanic words and ideas, fag, queer, whatever, those are satanic impulses and I hope you know that. But what if God would have looked at you and labeled you when you were a sinner the way you like to label other people? They're just, that's just them. No, God did, doesn't that, that's just an alcoholic. He, no, he's no good for anything. He's just a liar. He's just an adulterer. I'm, I'm glad God didn't do that to me. So I think we ought to think about those things when we begin to hurl judgments and label people. Yes, call sin, sin. But as Peter says, speak the truth in love. Let me close with this passage here, and I think it, it, it is a great, great way to close this section and all the others. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And so the idea is that we only can enter the kingdom of God if we've been born again. So do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
neither the sexually immoral, anything outside of the context of man and woman in one covenant marriage is sexual immorality. Anything, premarital, post-marital, anything in between. Uh, Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That is a description of a heart that's never been changed. And because that heart has never been changed, it's just, you know, it's not, oh, I, I did one act, or I, I lied once, I did this. I, you, know, I, you know, I'm seeing a, a great increase of phases. You know, I'm going to try same-sex relationships because it just seems to be the thing to do. That, that was unheard of, even in my day and your day. But we're seeing young people just kind of try this out for a season. And, and that's why we pray for them. And we're not talking about a season. We're talking about someone that is involved with these things. They never repent. They never change. They, they live this way till the day they die. They live separated from the thing to the Lord. They, and such were some of you, verse 11, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. But so were some of you, and I could read this morning, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So yes, homosexuality is in our face. Uh, and yes, it is a very serious thing. And I'm going to tell you, if you're raising children and grandchildren and you're ignoring it, you don't need to ignore it. You need to be talking to your children about not just same-sex relationships, but boy-girl relationships. I always tell this to, to, to you know, people that have uh, girls. Listen, I know what that teenage boy is thinking about. Do you know what a teenage boy is thinking about? Okay, I know what he's thinking about because I was a teenage boy. And so we need to be discussing these things very openly and and biblically with our children. And and that, yes, we cannot control what our children do. We we can't crawl into them and be their their life. But we need to be able to raise them in fear and admonition of the Lord and to trust his word. And then to pray for them that you love them enough. That you, you know, that you, they let you know that you love them enough that you want them to be sanctified, washed by the blood of the Lamb. Uh, from church discipline to that last question, I want us to be a church that loves people enough that we share the gospel with them. You know, going back to, to church discipline, because I don't want to end that people think, what, are we fixing to go into some church discipline mode? No. Uh, I would love to have a church membership of who is, who is the family. Uh, we are going to begin a process through our deacon ministry of just handing out active list. Carol, you know, handing out an active list. Highlight if you know what continent these people live on. You know, <laughs> I want to be able to look at that list and pray for my family. I mean, I want to look out into. The, I want to take a piece of paper and I want to know. Hey, I'm praying for Nick today. You know, Nick is my brother in Christ. I'm praying for him today. Hey, has anybody seen Nick in a few weeks? Somebody check on that. That's what I want to do. You know, I want to look at a church family and say, I know where my brother and sister in Christ is. And if they've slidden, let's go get them. Men, let's, women, let's go biblically. We call it whatever. Let's go to them face-to-face and love on them. And let's help them through wherever they are. Not a perfect church, and none of us would be here but just a church that we understand we're a family. I hope these are helpful. I apologize. I was trying to talk through the tornado warning. 
I didn't hear any sirens or anything, and, and those, I kept getting things on that. Why don't I end with a, a word of prayer? Uh, thank you for the questions. We almost could do one question a quarter. Uh, you could see it takes a lot of time to really unfold that. If you have follow-up questions to those, if you will email Matt and I, we will put something together and respond to your email. If you have further information or clarity or you have more questions, if you email, I'll be glad to, to follow up and, and answer more explicitly those questions. So let's stand and uh, we'll dismiss with a word of prayer. Lord God, we thank you for our time together tonight. We are thankful that everything we have, we have because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that in our, in our depravity, in our lostness, you saved us. And Lord, I pray that as your church that we live out beyond these walls with a spirit of love and a spirit of gentleness and a, and a spirit where the, we are truly people of grace. That people may not like what we say or they may not believe what we say, but that they would never be offended by our, our appearance, by our judgment, and by the way that we treat them. Lord, we can stand on truth and we can do so with the spirit of love. Because we know your word says that you are working in the hearts of people and you are literally drawing men and women into yourself. And I pray that we would be a church where people know that the Spirit of God is moving within us. We love because you first loved us. We thank you for our time tonight and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.